Equal access to justice is a core American value. In each episode of Talk Justice, an OSC podcast, we will explore ways to expand access to justice and illustrate why it is important to the legal community, businesses, government, and the general public. Talk Justice is sponsored by the Leaders' Council of the Legal Services Corporation. It really was a learning process for me. I had to learn to listen and, and, and shut up for once. And what I was learning was um, that people, we, there were these, you know, what would I call these non-credential forms of meaning that we in the front row just didn't consider. The value of faith, the value of hometown, the value of family. Um, and, you know, we'll get to race in a second, but the value of these identities that you could have that you didn't have to have a resume for. It's really my great pleasure to introduce Chris Arnaud uh, to the program. I've been following Chris for a while um, and excited to have a little conversation with him. Chris is a freelance writer. He's a photographer. He's an author. Um, he just came out fairly recently with the book, Dignity. Um, we've, I think, got a link to it in uh, the webinar, and hopefully we'll put one on the, uh, the, the Facebook page as well. Uh, Chris has work as his writings have appeared in the New York Times and the Atlantic, the Guardian, the Post, the Financial Times, the Journal, uh, and a bunch of others. Uh, he's got a PhD in physics from Johns Hopkins, um, and he worked for years as a uh, uh, trader at a Wall Street bank. Um, but he left in 20, 2012 to really uh, catalog uh, life in America, which led to his book. Uh, so Chris, I am delighted to have you here. Um, uh, so where are you where are you calling in from today, Chris? Are you at home or are you traveling around the country? I'm at home. Unfortunately, COVID has uh, has left me at home. I, I thought in honor of um, I was gonna I was gonna I was gonna do this from a parking lot of a McDonald's in honor of uh, <laughs> of my project. <laughs> I, I think you should have. Um, and but, look, uh, look. The, 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 you know, as you as you all know, that wouldn't have been a very reliable service. Um, uh, but you know. I, not, I thought not sitting in my rude. car, live streaming from my car in a parking lot of McDonald's would have been appropriate. And we'll get to the McDonald's in a second, but I want to I want to talk about the, uh, uh, an important distinction that you make, and really kind of much of the focus of your book is this distinction between so-called back row America and front row America. Could you tell us a little bit about what you mean by by back row and front row America, and and how we understand them as different? Back row America is is generally the people the people on the the you know your the people you 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 serve the the people that most of the people on this on this uh, call serve um, it's people who um, I use the schoolroom analogy because I think the biggest division uh, you know one of the biggest divisions in our country right now is education it's a division we don't seem to really talk about we talk about the other divisions class and race but I think um, uh, education is a huge division and so I use the schoolroom analogy of the back row is generally the people I spent the last ten years. Uh, uh, with are people who are, the, are at the very back of the row, um, people who who generally might have dropped out of high school, have, um, and if they did finish high school, they didn't go to college, and if they went to college, they usually went to a um, a community college for a few years or something, or maybe a smaller state school. Whereas I contrast that with so many people who are both on this call, myself, and the people who generally make policy for our country, who generally have gone to a, a collection of maybe 15 institutions, the same, you know, college, have advanced degrees, um, and, and live in what I call front row neighborhoods, places that are, you know, where people like them collect and uh, have, a, have an outside influence on how, how this country is run and, and the policies that shape it. And I think that the difference between the two is just, is, 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 is the gulf is often so large that I think we have a trouble thinking about it in many cases. Yeah. And you, I mean, your own trajectory shows a kind of a movement from kind of back row America in a small town in Florida to, I mean, front row, front row America, PhD at John Hopkins, uh, working at an elite Wall Street firm. But then you sort of go back to the back row in, in these walks that you took in Hunts Point. And if anybody knows New York, 
Hunts Point is, is not a place that you go because you want to see, uh, you know, the tourist sites. Hunts Point is a place you go because you have to go there. Uh, how did that kind of that journey that led really to the book Dignity begin with these walks in Hunts Point? Originally, it began with just uh, relieving stress. I would take these 20 mile walks and then but I would bring my camera. And during that process of taking these walks through New York, I started meeting people who were attracted to me by my camera and wanted to tell me their stories. And what evolved basically was a recognition that I had kind of gotten to a point that I never thought I would get to where I'd kind of forgotten my past and forgotten and gotten to a point of privilege where I'd lost touch with all those things I used to think that I understood. You know, the people I quote, I was making decisions about people, you know, I was literally sitting in front of a wall of computers making bets and opinions based on things I, based on just um, numbers flashing across a screen without actually meeting the people that were impacted by these decisions. And during those walks, I was meeting the people impacted by those decisions. Um, and so the walks eventually took me, as you said, to Hunts Point, which is probably, you know, uh, probably um, what's most jarring about Hunts Point is beyond the, the stereotypes that, you know, that um, is, is the fact that it's only, it's only 10, 15 minutes from Upper West Side. <laughs> you know, it's, it's just such a different world, so close to a world. And the, and the two worlds just, just are, you know, just don't as, as a lot of your listeners know, just don't are so, so are very different and that that experience in hunts point and that re-encounter with i guess your own past in a way kind of led you to this two-year journey across america not as i like to say not not a journey of its landmarks and monuments but of its poverty of its poor neighborhoods its poor people and when did you kind of decide to, to kind of leave this wall street life behind and begin to really explore this side of america you know, I spent uh, basically three, when I had walked into Hunts Point, I was really drawn in by a lot. A lot of it was a political um, issue, meaning that I was drawn in by the kind of injustice I saw and was very frustrated. And so I spent time trying to trying to share what I saw with with the pop with with the wider public through my writings and my photography. Um, and so I spent three years in Hunts Point. You know, with with you know, the, the, the most back row, um, you know, uh, I don't want to use stigmatized terms, but I will use them. I have spent time with heroin addicts under, under in abandoned buildings and abandoned cars under bridges. Um, and uh, <clears throat> I, you know, at some point I realized that I, what I, what I saw the injustices and bo both the justices and also the beauty I saw in Hunts Point, the unrecognized beauty that I think doesn't get talked about enough. I wanted to see if that was also true elsewhere. Was this just something unique to Hunts Point or was it a broader issue? And I realized that I was much happier doing, there was this really absurd period in my life when I was doing this, but also working on Wall Street. And so my, my weekends were spent, spent in drug traps um, and my days were spent trading <laughs> trading bonds. And I realized like, this, this, these two couldn't coexist. And I had to choose which one that I, that quite honestly, I, I felt better about doing. And it, it was the photography and the, and then the writing. And so I quit my Wall Street job and did that. And I had the, I had the luxury of having worked a long enough time on Wall Street that I could do that, which is, you know, very few people have that, 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 that ability, that privilege. Um, and so I, I literally got in my van and, and put 200,000 miles on it, driving around the country, visiting communities that, that you, the people on this call know all, all too well that you serve. And you and, and um, in your discussion of kind of back row and front row, and you talked a little bit about education, but in, in the book, you, you mentioned another of kind of distinguishing features uh, that you see with back row America that, that makes it different than front row. One is, is faith uh, and the, the, the importance of faith in their life. The second, I think, is a sense of place, uh, their, their connection to their home and to where they live. 
And of course, race has a, a huge impact on what goes on in background America. And, and, I, and, I, and I suppose we could add the, the ubiquity, as you mentioned it, of, of drugs uh, um, in that, that world. Can you talk about sort of the values of the background that, that the front row often misunderstands or even, I guess, ridicules? Yeah, you know, the, what I try to communicate in my book is what I call those, I call them non-credential forms of meaning, which mm-hmm. means that we in the front row tend to, we recognize one kind of goal in life, and that's to build a resume. That's to get credentials and build a resume and be successful. And that's how we define ourselves. In the back row, in the places I was going, you know, Portsmouth, Ohio, um, Hunts Point, um, uh, El Paso, first ward of El Paso, um, East LA, um, you know, what I was seeing, you know, and learning, and it really was a learning process for me. Um, I had to learn to listen and, and, and shut up for what for once. And what I was learning was um, that people, we, there were these, you know, what I call these non-credential forms of meaning that we in the front row just didn't consider. Um, you know, the value of faith, the value of hometown, the value of family. Um, and, you know, we'll get to race in a second, but the value of these identities that you could have that you didn't have to have a resume for. And that these were these were things that were gifted to you at birth. And so in that sense, they were very non-elitist. They were, you know, you, everybody everybody has everybody has a family. Every, most everybody has a family. Most everybody has, has, has a hometown and a community. And most everybody can, can enter a church and be, be a welcome member. And those things you don't need a resume for. They're just they're 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 the forms of meaning that we I think have lost sight of, you know. And I, I, I'm I'm not a um I, I want to be um I'm, I'm very careful to um, distinguish between having lost sight on and, and, and actively devalued. I think we've just I think people in the front row are are not bad players. I think they've just they don't they like me sitting behind a computer screen looking at numbers. Numbers don't you know, they don't measure faith. They don't measure the value of faith. They don't measure the value of being a, me- a, a good member of your congregation or a good member of your um, community. They don't measure, me- measure the value of staying in your hometown full life. They don't measure va- the value of being a good, a good parent. And so I think we've we, we, we tend to devalue them only because we don't value them in the first place. We don't think of them as things that register as something that means something to somebody. And that can get into the actual, that can pivot into actual mocking of them because if you don't see it as, you know, in particular, I think the biggest one comes across as faith where I think the front row is, you know, the policymakers are um, a lo- more comfortable. And now this was never me, but I mean, I counted myself as a, you know, as an atheist at the time, you know, I was surrounded by people who, who, who just looked at people who went to church or people who, who lived their life for the church as, as somehow backwards. And I think, you know, that, 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 that's a sense of humiliation that hits home for a lot of people that can be very painful. Yeah, I have to say my own experience, you know, I worked for three years in a parish in, in rural Ohio, and I have to say my University of Chicago law degree meant nothing to them. Uh, the fact that I was uh, there in the parish, that I was willing to help families, that uh, that I was committed to something, that meant a lot to them. And so I agree, there's this, it's a different value system in which the credentials that I'm used to, my big resume, just meant nothing to them. Um, but that commitment to family and to faith and to the community meant a whole lot uh, and was really what defined you. Uh, one of the things I sort of want to talk about, we, we talked about a little bit at the beginning, two points of commonality in terms of places that you you mentioned a lot. We talked a little bit about faith, so churches uh, are important there, but also the McDonald's. In many ways, what you what your what your travels were, where it was a trip from one McDonald's to the next. I I hope there's a there's a reward program for the McDonald's because you probably got a lot of that. Uh, and you point 
Backrow America gravitates to both. Can you talk a little bit about that? What is it about these that bring in that back row where they find a connection with and what can sort of front row, especially service providing front row America kind of learn from this? The, the biggest, you know, I'll, I'll address the uh, McDonald's first. And I, I went there because that's where, that's where the people I was writing about went. And it was pretty, and once, you know, once I opened my eyes and saw why are they there, it became pretty obvious, which is um, there are spaces that allow people to congregate for, for periods of time um, and uh, don't cost a lot um, and provide simple services without a, a great sense of feeling judged, meaning you can buy a I, you know, good, they actually have good food. Um, I, I, I count myself as someone who likes McDonald's food. Um, and I say that non-ironically, um, but you, you can buy inexpensive food that's filling and being in a space where you can use a restroom, you can use Wi-Fi, you know, that's extraordinarily important. And then you often can charge your, you have charging outlets. And that's important for people who don't have access to the, to these very basic, what are now basic um, needs. But also the most important thing was in some senses, especially for the homeless that I was dealing with and the people who were, you know, involved in drugs at the time, um, was it was a place you could rejoin polite society and not not be an outcast. You could just sit there and be a member. You know, you could you could walk into the McDonald's, reach into the garbage can, bra- grab out a newspaper or a cup, fill a soda cup, and sit in the corner and just just be just be a member of society again without you know being being mocked or scolded or or whatever. And that was really important. And you know, what 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 and and they work. I mean, and the other thing is that they, they, and this is where I'll go back to the churches is a lot of the a lot of the spaces I spent time in, a lot of the neighborhoods I put time in, the only things that were open and functional, you know, that that were available to people were were, were you know, Wednesday nights, Saturday nights, Sunday services in churches where the lights as I say in my book where the lights were on and they were warm and and, and you walked into the spaces and you felt like you were you were understood and you weren't, you know, you, like I always say, you know, and I do this to my, my, my friends in academics. I said, look, I, I appreciate a lot of your goals in academics. Um, but if a homeless person walks onto a college campus, the police are going to be called, you know, if, if, if they walk and they're not going to find people who are like them, um, um, who, who are not going to, who, you know, they may be people who want to advocate for them, but they're not going to be people they understand where they walk into a McDonald's or to a church, especially the more storefront churches, they're going to meet people who are like them, who look like them, behave like them, act like them, especially, you know, the employees at McDonald's are often people who have had rough past themselves. And so there's this connection there where they feel welcomed and the lights are on, you know, they, to, to, to put it in a kind of, and people are going to, you know, people will, will, will laugh at me for saying this, but McDonald's and churches are, play, you know, places that provide nonprofits. And I look, I love nonprofits and I, and I love the work they do, but in many cases they can feel, um, they can feel like they have no soul. They're, they're, they have linoleum floors, harsh fluorescent lighting, and they just feel like there's, there's rules about everything. And the churches and the McDonald's are places that have, you know, I'm going to say McDonald's has soul, it has soul, you know, there's a sense of like, you know, a community there that really is kind of welcoming, um, you know, that, that I think it, that works. Um, and I think what people can learn, and the, the, the other one is just accessibility, they're accessible. Um, and I think that's the biggest lesson I would say that to, to people who work in, in providing services is this is where the people want to be. This is the spaces they want to occupy. So go there rather than have them come to you. 
Great. Um, we're uh, we're almost at the end, end time. So I do want to ask you just a couple uh, last questions and, and one that actually probably just one last question that I want to jump to. Uh, in your discussion of your time in Hunts Point, you talk about Takesha and her husband, Steve. Um, and when you ask her how she wants to be described, she says, quote, as I as who I am, a prostitute, a mother of six and a child of God. I, I was really moved by that. Um, and I think that seems to sum up more than anything, kind of the message of dignity. You know, how can we in the front row who may struggle with Takesha's life decisions, as it were, um, understand that she deserves dignity and make sure to treat her with dignity? Yeah, I mean, that that quote struck me eight years ago and it will never leave me and Takesha will never leave me. But I mean, you know, it's treat people as individuals, you know, um, you know, treat them as, you know, give them the full benefit of being fully rounded people, both in a good way and a bad way. You don't have to, you know, you don't have to like like everybody you meet who's homeless. Some of them you don't like, but, you know, that they they really are they are, you know, everybody's equally valid. Um, and people have gotten into these positions through complex stories that you don't necessarily know when you first meet them. And there's, there's a lot more to people than, you know, than just the stereotypes we, we attach to them. Yeah. As, as I, one thing I've learned as a priest is that people's stories are much more complex than we understand That's correct. almost all the time. Chris, I wish I had another hour of conversation okay. with you. I just, I loved your book. I love following you on Twitter. I do say anybody who wants to see the beauty of back row America is please see Chris's uh, photography of back row America. You really see the beauty of this, of this, of these people and the places in which they inhabit. And I think it's essential for us who serve these people to understand that beauty. Chris, thank you for your time. Thank you very much, Father. Podcast guest speakers' views, thoughts, and opinions are solely their own and do not necessarily represent the legal services corporation's views, thoughts, or opinions. The information and guidance discussed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as legal advice. You should not make decisions based on the podcast content without seeking legal or other professional advice.